Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of Medical Product Outsourcing, back again for another episode of Mike on MedTech, a part of the MedTech Matters podcast channel. Joining me as always, Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences. How are you today, Mike? I'm well, thank you, Sean. How are you? Good, thanks. Uh, so today our topic or our focus of discussion is going to be something that's come up uh, a little bit here and there in some of our more regulatory-focused uh, uh, discussions, and that is the Safety and Performance 510K. Um, you know, this is something that the, the FDA, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is something the FDA put out a final guidance for last year. And, of course, as we've said, final being in quotes because it's, it's guidance and it's never quite final. But um, why don't we get started by you just explaining over, you know, overall what is the safety and performance 510K? Yeah, great question, Sean, and thanks again for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience. So the safety and performance-based 510K is the newest in a, uh, in a, in a series of uh, 510Ks that have been created in, uh, by the FDA over the years. The original, the traditional 510K was created uh, in 1976 and then came along the special and the abbreviated, and, uh, and now we have the safety and performance 510K. And basically, it's a... Um, it's, a, it's an updated version. In my opinion, it's really not new at all. It's nothing more than an updated version of the abbreviated 510K, which until now has been the least commonly used type of 510K. Uh, just some quick statistics for you and our audience, Sean. Uh, the traditional 510Ks uh, represent the bulk of our industry. About 75% of 510Ks are the traditional type. The special 510Ks, um, represent about 20% of the 510Ks. And then the, uh, the abbreviated 510K, which is now being called the safety and performance-based 510K, uh, is only used about 4 or 5% of the time. But perhaps because of these changes, that will increase the, the popularity of the, of the safety and performance 510K. We can talk about that. Okay, great. And uh, so let's, let's Let's explore it a little bit more in terms, you mentioned these other 510Ks. You know, what, what are the primary difference or what are the primary variations between the safety and performance 510K and something like the special 510K? Yeah, again, great question. So the original 510K, the traditional 510K, which, was, which goes back to 1976, is the most common, and that is for quote-unquote new medical devices. Um, and I'm putting the word new in air quote, Sean, because I hope you can, <laughs> and your audience can appreciate that if a device is basically the same, i.e. substantially equivalent to another device already on the market, what we call a predicate device, can we really call it new? <laughs> so the traditional 510K has been around for a very long time. Uh, about 20 years ago in 1998, FDA created what was called at the time the new 510K paradigm where they introduced the special 510K and the abbreviated 510K. In a nutshell, Sean, the special 510K can be used in a few different situations, but the most common situation is if you have a device that's already on the market, probably with a traditional 510K, the device is on the market, it's being used, it's being sold, and you make a change or a modification to that device. It could be either a change in the design, a change in the material, a change in, uh, you know, w uh, whatever, maybe even uh, a change in the labeling. The special 510K is 
uh, usually the mechanism that we use to notify FDA of that change. And okay. by the way, Sean, the reason why that is an important type of 510K, as we've talked about before, is because many times companies don't notify the FDA of these changes. They instead do something called a letter to file. And the reason why I bring it up is because one of the most common reasons why companies get warning letters in 4A3s is because of change management or the lack thereof. So the wow. special 510K is primarily for uh, notifying FDA of changes to existing devices. And then finally, we get to the last type of 510K, the abbreviated 510K, uh, which is now basically being known as the safety and performance-based 510K. The difference there is you still have to have a predicate. You still have to have, um, you still have to show, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you don't have to have a predicate. You still have to show substantial equivalence, but you don't uh, have to have a predicate. Instead, you show substantial equivalence by uh, by um, meeting a particular uh, performance standard or, or something like that, a cri performance criteria or something like that. So instead of in the traditional 510K where you typically will test your device and test your competitor's device and compare the results, in the abbreviated 510K, and this is exactly the same as the safety and performance-based 510K, that's why I say that there's really nothing new here, you are showing substantial equivalence on paper. It's a, it's a paper substantial equivalence argument, and specifically you're showing substantial equivalence by meeting a particular uh, industry standard or guidance or something like that. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah, I think so, I, and uh, and I think I'm, I'll get back to uh, that that differentiation in a in a minute. But first, I just want to ask. Uh, so so, given the the different options for 510k, when should a manufacturer uh, consider using the safety and performance 510k? What makes this one a preferred option, considering only four percent are using it currently or using the the previous version of it, you know, when should a, a manufacturer consider using the safety and performance 510K? Good question. There are, there are several criteria, several um, uh, um, recommendations that I would have to answer your question. The first is if you're working on a type of device or a type of technology that's been around for a very long time. Um, in other words, it's very well-established technology, and there are already, <coughs> pardon me, there are already out there exist several standards or guidance documents or what have you um, on that technology. Then you should certainly consider using this uh, this um, quote-unquote new 510K. But really, it's 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 not new. That's that's the most common scenario. Another scenario that I've run into is in situations where you cannot get a hold of the um, predicate device uh, physically, so you could not test it uh, even if you wanted to. In other words, I've had several devices in, 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 in vitro diagnostic, an IVD that I worked on recently, where our predicate device was, it still had an active 510K, but it was no longer on the market. It was no longer commercially available. And so we could not get this device physically right. even if we wanted to. And mm -hmm. so you can't really, and believe it or not, Sean, I've seen people do this, you can't really go into the FDA and say, well, our predicate device is X, but 
we can't get a hold of X because it's no longer commercially available, but just kind of take our word for it that our device is basically the same. You, 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 you're, a, you're laughing, Sean, so you appreciate my not so subtle use of humor. You know, FDA is going to go tell you to, to you know, go pound sand, and right, rightly right. so. So you can do a, um, uh, you, you can use the, the uh, uh, abbreviated or the safety and performance-based 510K logic in that kind of a scenario where you compare it to a, to a, a standard, if there is a standard exists, or if you um, uh, have enough information that you can collect on that predicate device, maybe in the literature, maybe from subject matter experts, maybe from, uh, from similar devices. You know, at the end of the day, Sean, it's very, very simple. When it comes to the 510K, regardless of what 510K flavor we're talking about, when it comes to the 510K, we have to show our device is substantially equivalent to something, whether it's another device, whether it's a standard, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, I don't really care. We have to show that it's substantially equivalent to something. How we do it, how we show that it's substantially equivalent is totally up to us. It can be done by, by head-to-head testing. It can be done, as I said, to, to, as a paper comparison. It can be done by, by many different ways. The regulation doesn't say how, and in my opinion, the regulation should not say how. Um, that should be up to us. Right. All right, so let, let's get back to that performance criteria and, and how it's different from a predicate device. You know, obviously when you're doing a, a test of, a, a, of an actual uh, device that you have in your possession, you're able to uh, specifically test for certain criteria uh, that would that would reflect, you know, or, or be similar to the device that you want to be approved. You know, when you're talking about paper, I, you you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, marketing materials or things like that. I mean, uh, you know, are these, you know, reliable? Uh, I know with marketing materials, they need to, you know, the FDA can can hit a company for having uh, false information or, or unapproved uh, information in their marketing materials, but, you know, perhaps that's why the product is off the market. I mean, are, what, what are the stipulations around that? It seems a little, a little gray. I mean, can you kind of explain that a little bit more? Yeah, obviously, Sean, whatever, whatever comparison you're making, um, any data that you're not collecting yourself, for example, that you're getting from, from somewhere else or somebody else, obviously the reliability or what I would call the credibility of that evidence is, is, incre- is incredibly important. And so we, as, a, as, as medical device professionals, we should always be assessing the credibility or the validity of that evidence. It's got to be credible evidence. To use a, a regulatory metaphor, Sean, uh, it's the difference between real-world evidence versus real-world data. Real-world data is, is, a, is a low place to set the bar. It includes everything, but real-world evidence is only that portion of the real-world data that is actually credible. So just because there's information that's out there doesn't necessarily mean that it's, that it's reliable or, or credible. Um, so, so, so simply put, you know, we have to, in all situations, whether we're talking about this particular 510K or anything else, uh, obviously the integrity of that information is very important. In terms of the, the special, uh, the, sorry, the safety and performance-based 510K, the way that the FDA has set it up currently is that there are only four device types that are specifically listed on FDA's website uh, and, and these are uh, that, that would qualify for this particular program, at least right now. This program is sort of being phased into effect. 
One of them is for conventional Foley catheters that are used <coughs> in urology. This technology has been around for a very, very long time, and so it's well established. There's standards on it. There's guidance on it. So we can use the, the safety and performance-based 510K right now if we were working on a conventional Foley catheter. Um, and the reason why I use that as an example, Sean, is because coincidentally I'm working on a Foley catheter right now that might not be considered a conventional Foley catheter because it has a type of coating on it. Um, and I'm not going to get into the details of what that coating does, right, but, right. But, 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 you know, conventional Foley catheters have been around for, I don't know, 50 years, maybe more. So, so can we use our uh, modified Foley catheter, one with our, our special coating on it, under the safety and performance-based 510K, well, the answer to that question is not a simple yes or no, but we will take it to the FDA as a, as a pre-sub to, to, uh, to present this to them. Another quick example of another type of device that's, uh, that's currently, available, uh, currently uh, applicable to this new, quote-unquote, new program is uh, metal bone screws. Um, these are screws that could be put in long bones of the arm or the leg. Interesting that uh, FDA specifically excludes spinal um, uh, bone screws. That does not qualify for this program, probably because okay. of the risk. But okay. metal bone screws in other areas, once again, these have been around, bone screws have been around for probably 100 years, maybe more. So this is, uh, this is very, very well-established technology. There's plenty of standards out there, some of them from FDA, some of them for other places. So these are the kinds of devices, these are the kinds of technologies that can be used for this program right now. But again, Sean, I just want to emphasize that this quote-unquote new safety and performance-based 510K is nothing more than a, an expansion or a, uh, a reincarnation, if you will, of the abbreviated 510K because under the abbreviated 510K, FDA, FDA did not go to this level of specificity where they started to list specific devices and technologies. The abbreviated 510K basically said that as long as there is a standard or a guidance that you can use, then you can use the abbreviated 510K. Here we're going maybe a step further and we're saying, okay, here are the types of devices and technologies that are applicable. Um, so, um, you know, quite frankly, Sean, I think FDA is doing some of our homework for us. I would rather have the flexibility to go to the FDA and say, here's my device, here's the appropriate standard, and this is why the abbreviated or the safety and performance 510K is applicable, is instead of waiting for them to add it to their list. Right, right. Yeah, and, and you know, in, in speaking with you briefly about this, um, you know, I, I thought that the safety and performance 510K was, you know, just a, a, a quicker pathway to market for, for well-established Me Too products. Um, but it sounds like it's a little more specific to maybe commoditized products would be a, a, a good classification for these, you know, well-established device technologies that, that would be able to be used for the safety and performance 510K. Yeah, if you want to call it, well, uh, commoditized, uh, well, uh, sorry, what was the word that you used? Uh, commoditized. Uh, 
commoditized. Thank you. Uh, if you want to call it that, that's fine. You know, I don't want to quibble on, on terminology. I tend to think of it more in terms of devices that have well-established technology that have been around for a very long time, that have standards associated with them, that have a well that are well un understood when it comes to risk and benefit. But at the end of the day, you're right. It's for technologies that that have a, a, a long track record and, and, and so on. It's not for something that's new. It's not for something that nobody has ever seen before. It's not for something where there are no industry standards for. Right, right. Okay. <clears throat> so, so does this have anything to do, or does this relate to, uh, you know, I know there's been, there's been talk of, of putting a, uh, a date on, on a, you know, predicate devices of, of 10 years, um, and whether that goes through or not, you know, remains to be seen, uh, but that, that has come up. Uh, is, does the safety and performance 510K, because of the way it's, you know, because of the way the device is, is compared using performance criteria, is this a way to kind of encourage the use of more recent products, you know, to, to get a, you know, to, to circumvent putting in a, a hard-line 10-year uh, uh, directive, or is this, you know, does this really have nothing to do with that? So, good question, Sean. For the benefit of our audience, what you're referring to is the so-called 10-year predicate rule, which basically means that if you're doing a traditional 510K and you're choosing a predicate, uh, right now you can choose any predicate you want that's been, uh, you know, that has a 510K, which means it could go back to 1976. But because of a problem called predicate creep, which you and I have talked about before, one possible solution that some people have proposed is the so-called 10-year predicate rule, which in essence means that you would have to choose a predicate, a device to compare to, that got a 510K within the last 10 years. You could not go beyond that. For a whole bunch of reasons, Sean, I'm adamantly against that. I think that's a terrible idea for a whole bunch of different reasons. But how it relates to the safety and performance-based 510K, I don't know. That's an interesting question. It doesn't directly relate because, as we talked about, Sean, you're not showing substantial equivalence to a specific device. Instead, you're showing it to, uh, to a standard or a guidance document or something like that. Now, I suppose one could uh, suggest maybe you know, the, how, how uh, valid, how current is that standard. In other words, some people might say, you know, in order to use the safety and performance-based 510K, that standard has, needs to be adopted within the last 10 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, as far as I know, I have not heard any, any discussion on that. I'll tell you when we will have discussion on it, Sean, and that is if companies bring devices onto the market under the safety and performance-based 510K, they um, show uh, compliance to a particular standard. If it turns out that the standard they use was, was quite old and no longer applicable, and those devices go on to harm people and in some cases kill people, I guarantee that's when you're <laughs> going to start hearing people talk about it. Yeah, so for, I, I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen, and I certainly hope that it doesn't happen, but it could happen, and if it does, just remember, Sean, you heard it here first. <laughs> that goes for and our listeners, too. That, that's right. And just one other thing I wanted to mention that you brought up a, a couple of minutes ago, Sean. Um, there is an assumption that the abbreviated 510K or the now the safety and performance-based 510K is shorter 
than the traditional 510K. Now, oh, okay. I, can't say, I can't say specifically with regard to the safety and performance-based 510K because there's, it's still a, a very new program and there's very, very little data on it yet. But there is 20 years' worth of data for the abbreviated 510K, and I can tell you uh, that when you look at the statistics, the average review time for an abbreviated 510K is actually longer than that of a traditional 510K. So wow. suffice it to say, um, uh, abbreviated doesn't necessarily mean what some people think it means. It's kind of, you know, to quote a famous politician, it depends on what your definition of is is. Right, right. Well, considering the, the, you know, there there could be several factors for that, but, you know, looking at the, the uh, you know, looking at your options for 510K, if, if I know that the abbreviated has a, has a or, or the now safety and performance 510K has a longer timeline uh, typically for, uh, you know, receiving feedback from the FDA or an approval or, you know, what have you, um, Obviously, I'm going to look to maybe not use that, but then again, it comes back to if you don't have a predicate device uh, that's available, you may not have the have the choice. But do you think uh, uh, that with the FDA kind of refreshing the abbreviated 510K and now giving it this new name and maybe some new focus, do you foresee perhaps that time frame shortening or, or get, you know, is it, is it a result perhaps that it hasn't been used as much in the past, so therefore it wasn't an emphasis for FDA reviewers, uh, whereas maybe now it will be, or do you not see the timeline being affected very much? So, uh, first of all, one other thing I would, I would mention in terms of time. Here's another little bit of regulatory trivia for you, Sean. When you look at the RTA, they refuse to accept guidance for the 510K. The RTA checklist for the abbreviated 510K is actually longer than the RTA checklist for the traditional 510K. So, wow. once again, abbreviated doesn't necessarily mean what some people think it might. In terms of your question of, you know, ultimately, you know, moving forward, will the uh, safety and performance-based 510K become more popular? Uh, I think probably yes. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with um, when Scott Gottlieb, before he left the agency, you know, he, he basically, you know, pulled out this seldomly used abbreviated 510K, kind of dusted it off, shined it up a little bit, and uh, repackaged it and put it back out there as the safety and performance-based 510K. I have no problem with that. I think it's a, it's a good idea. But in terms of will it actually save you time, well, one of the critical factors here is the, um, you mentioned earlier, Sean, the quality or the reliability or the validity of your data. I would argue that just as critical is going to be the reliability, the quality, the, the, um, the validity of the, of the standard or the standards that you use. Because just, you, just because you're using a standard, just because you're using an FDA guidance, doesn't necessarily mean that that guidance, that those, that those testing methodologies, for example, are reliable or are, are, are what we should be using. You know, there are a lot of standards that I see that from a biomedical engineering perspective, Sean, are total crap, and yet they're, they're still considered to be industry standards. So uh, 
I guess what I'm trying to say, Sean, in a long-winded way is what it comes down to at the end of the day is not the paperwork, not the form that you put this on, whether it's abbreviated or safety performance or traditional, whatever it is, but it's the, it's the, it's the biology and the engineering. That's always what is much, most important, and it should be what is most important. Right, right, absolutely. Um, all right, so, so before we wrap up, uh, are there, you know, can you, can you highlight, you know, just the most important takeaways that for a company that may be considering or, or looking at the safety and performance 510K for their product as an option for a regulatory pathway, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the most significant points that, that we covered that they should be aware of or they should keep top of mind? Yeah, great, great way to end our discussion, Sean. So here are uh, a couple of final, th final thoughts. So look, when it comes to the 510K, I don't care if we're talking about traditional or, or abbreviated or safety and performance or, or what have you. It's very, very simple. You have to show substantial equivalence. And substantial equivalence means both in terms of labeling as well as technology. You have to show that your labeling is basically the same and you have to show that your technology is basically the same. How you do it, whether you do it in the sort of head-to-head uh, you know, -head or apples-to-apples -apples comparison where you show substantial equivalence to another device, which is typically the way we do it in a traditional 510K, or if we do what I like to call a paper substantial equivalence comparison where we compare it to a particular standard or information that we find from the literature, you know, as we can with the safety and performance-based 510K, that's all totally up to, to us. But at the end of the day, you have to show substantial equivalence. And taking that one step further, any, the, 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 the regulation for the 510K shown, and this is not the change since it was created in 1976, the regulation for substantial equivalence says the, the labeling and the technology has to be substantially equivalent. It does not have to be identical. Any right. differences in the labeling or the technology, we have to justify those differences. We have to basically go into the FDA and argue, hey, here's a difference in our device compared to the standard, for example, and this is why that, that difference doesn't matter. It does not add additional questions of safety and efficacy. It does not change the overall risk, and so on and so on. So if you can do this on paper, if you can do it simply comparing your device to a standard, in other words, here's the standard for, for um, urinary catheters, Foley catheters, or here's this standard for bone screws. I'm right. making a bone screw. My bone screw meets this standard. Then by all means, you should consider this particular type of 510K. If your device doesn't meet that standard, if your device is a little different, like the coded Foley catheter that I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, then you should probably consider the traditional 510K. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if people understood the concept of the abbreviated 510K, which has been around for 20 years, philosophically the concept of the safety and performance-based 510K is exactly the same. All right. Well, I think that's a, that's a great way to wrap up and, uh, you know, appreciate you, as always, explaining the, the differences and the, the details devils in the details, of course, and, and no more so than with uh, the FDA and regulatory guidance. Um, so I appreciate that, and uh, I think we have plenty to think about on this one. Uh, as always, we'll come back to you with another topic, uh, the next mic on MedTech. But until then, thanks for listening.